In John chapter 21, we're dealing with more of the resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ to his disciples as John wraps up his gospel. It's interesting that he's already dealt with the resurrection of Jesus and the disciples are starting to know that Jesus is alive, but that's not the end of the gospel. He wants to make sure that we hear Jesus interact with his disciples as he reveals himself to them after his resurrection. And he uses this term on purpose, that Jesus reveals himself. As far as John is concerned, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ are not random appearances. But Christ is manifesting himself to them and to us. And he is showing them, he's showing us what life with him will look like now. So in our passage of scripture, Jesus is gonna show up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to prepare breakfast for a handful of his disciples. But again, it's more than just breakfast. It's actually a powerful lesson. And it's gonna become a setup. It's a setup for forgiveness. It's a setup for restoration. And it's a setup for mission between Jesus and his disciples. And all of it is a lesson about moving ahead with the message of the gospel. But before we get into all of those details and how it works its way out, we have a fishing story to deal with. A few disciples have made their way back to Galilee and they're fishing in the middle of the night. So as we watch this passage of scripture unfold, there are two thoughts I wanna make sure that we pay attention to, obedience and restoration. Obedience. We're going to discover that obedience to Jesus Christ is a teacher. The disciples, even in this passage of Scripture, are going to learn things about Jesus through a simple act of surprising obedience. And in that act, their lives are going to take a dramatic turn. In that act of obedience, they're actually going to have their eyes open and recognize that it is Jesus who is talking to them. So obedience is a teacher. It is a revealer. We're going to discover that obedience does us good. To obey our Lord and Savior is good for us. Now that goes against the grain of our sin nature. That goes against the grain of how we're talked to inside of our culture now. So we often think that obedience is a drudgery. Or we think that obedience is something that we have to force ourselves to do. But Christ can do stunning things through our lives of obedience, even in the simple mundane acts of normal life topic of obedience I think is going to be important for us this morning and then restoration this concept of restoration rolls itself out through this entire chapter now except possibly for John the writer of the gospel who was actually at the cross with Christ when he died every single one of these disciples has stumbled in the last few days they ran in the garden when Jesus was arrested Peter cut off the ear of the high priest's servants Peter denies Jesus and by the time Jesus is on the cross there's only one disciple and a handful of the female disciples who are there at the cross all of them have scattered and now that Christ is risen from the dead all of them need to have that relationship put back together again so that's going to unroll inside of this chapter for us this morning. And one disciple in particular eventually is going to sit by another fire. And he's going to have a heart-to-heart with his Savior. But before we get to that, let's read what Jesus does in this passage of Scripture. John chapter 21, verse 1. 
So friends, this is the word of the Lord. After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others of his disciples were with him, and two other of the disciples were with him together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going to go with you. Then they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So after this, after a couple of other appearances, after a few days passed, as a matter of fact, Jesus now has made his way to the Gospel of John, calls it the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Greek for the Sea of Galilee. So they've moved north back to kind of where they began as Jesus, uh, the teacher, the rabbi, as he gathers his disciples around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, if we've been reading the resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus reveals himself to Mary inside of the garden, one of the things he tells her is go and tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. So they spread the word and eventually the disciples start making their way north out of the city of Jerusalem back to the Sea of Galilee. And the way John the disciple puts it is Jesus reveals himself to his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. This is an important, this is a rich and important Greek word. It means to make manifest, to show something. He doesn't just show up or happen to run across the disciples one morning after they've been fishing. This has all been set up by Christ, and so he's going to manifest himself, teach something to them about him in this passage of Scripture. And while they're waiting for him, there's seven of the disciples there, Peter, uh, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, that's John, the writer of the gospel, and his brother James, and a couple of others, there's seven disciples all together that have come together at this point in time. So Peter and John and five other disciples head out at night to go fishing. You just imagine Peter, they've been waiting several days. He's sitting by the Sea of Galilee where he's been raised to fish. And he thinks, you know what? Let's just go fishing. Any fishermen with extra time on their hands, what do you think they're going to do if they're next to a place where they can go fishing? So this is exactly what Simon Peter does. And Thomas is with them. I love that note. Friends, I think it is so important in just the quick list of the gathering of the disciples at this moment to recognize how the, gathers, how, how the disciples have stayed together. They're in different pockets, but they're in a room together. They are by the Sea of Galilee together. And after all of this difficulty, after all of this stumbling, after all of this scattering, while they are still coming to terms with what it means for Jesus to be alive, they haven't disappeared. They haven't separated themselves from one another. But they're with each other. And it's while they are with each other that Jesus begins to reveal himself to them. We say this kind of thing from time to time because I just find it so important and more important, the closer it feels like the day of the Lord is coming. Don't neglect the gathering together, as some do, even as the day of the Lord draws closer and closer. In our fear, in our pain, in our sin, in our stumbling, it is so easy for us 
to separate ourselves from the body of Christ, from our spiritual family, for our Christian brothers and sisters. And as we separate ourselves, it becomes easier for our enemy to pick us off. So stay together. Stay with the body of Christ. And Thomas, who had his own revelation, he's with them. I don't know, as I read about the disciples, I have these images in my head. Thomas is thinking, I'm not missing anything ever again. I'm sticking with you guys. <laughs> so just in case Jesus shows up again, I'm not going to miss it. But they go fishing. And sometimes they're criticized for returning to fishing while Jesus is alive. And we think their job is now to go and spread the good news. But what's happened is they've gone to where Jesus said he would actually meet them. And a group of fishermen have done what a group of fishermen do. Peter, James, and John were professional fishermen, as Jesus called them. So they just go fishing. And John, the writer of the gospel, he tells us they're going fishing at night. And he says, but they didn't catch a single thing all night long. They're fishing all night, and they cannot catch a thing. It's interesting. When the disciples go fishing in the gospels, they never catch anything until Jesus shows up. That's interesting. They do what they normally do. They go about their jobs, but it just doesn't work until Jesus wakes up <laughs> or until Jesus shows up. I also find it interesting that John is using one of his favorite images throughout the gospel, and it's the image of light and darkness, of day and night. They're fishing at night without Jesus, and they don't catch a thing. But thankfully, night does not last all day. <laughs> the sun is going to rise, and that's exactly what happens in the next part of the passage. John chapter 21, verse 4, it goes like this. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So just as light is starting to creep over the hills, Jesus is standing on the shore waiting for them. The text says they didn't know that it was him. The text says they were about a hundred yards off. Day is just starting to dawn. And we've noticed this about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. There's just something different enough about him that it's hard to recognize him until they interact with him, until he speaks, until he shows them the scars of his hands and they recognize, oh, it really is the Lord. And then Jesus begins to shout over the coastline and he says, children, do you have any fish? Now, is that what you want to hear if you're a fisherman and you've been at it all night long and you haven't caught a single thing? I think the answer isn't, no, we don't. I think the answer is, no, we don't. We've been doing this all night. 
But when Jesus says, children, do you have any fish? This term for children, it's a term of endearment. It literally means children. But John, the gospel writer, uses it later on in his epistles when he speaks to people that he loves, when he speaks to the church. He calls them my little children, my beloved children. So Jesus is saying, friends, do you have anything to eat? Have you caught anything for breakfast? And they haven't. So this man on the shore that they don't yet recognize, he tells them to cast their net on the right side of the boat. Now again, I imagine as I read through this passage of scripture, what would a boat filled with tired professional fishermen think of this advice? Who is this guy? And does he know how many times we've already cast the net on both sides of the boat? One guy even suggested we cast it on the front of the boat. We've been all over the area. We haven't caught any fish. How many times have they moved the boat? How many times have they done this? But they do as he says. They do as he says. And suddenly, the net is so full, they can't drag it into the boat. This one command and this one act of obedience changes the entire scene. It changes the entire night. Just as day is dawning, Jesus speaks, his disciples obey, and suddenly their work is more fruitful than they ever could have imagined. So then John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he uses that moniker again in this passage. And John says to Peter, it is the Lord. Friends, this is significant. In an act of obedience to the voice of Christ, the disciple sees. Doesn't just see, the disciple discerns. The disciple understands. This, this is Christ. This is the risen Lord. This isn't a random stranger. This isn't a random event. He didn't just happen to see a school of fish on that side of the boat. It is the Lord. In an act of obedience, the disciple sees. So John discerns the situation. He had not recognized Jesus, but putting the pieces of this puzzle together, John the disciple realizes there's no other explanation for this moment than it is the Lord. This kind of moment may seem small to some, but I think this kind of thing is significant for you and me. Friends, if our eyes are not attentive to or ready to see or hear the Lord, if our ears have not been made aware of what the voice of God sounds like, when Jesus speaks, we're not going to hear. When he enters into our situation, when he walks into our night and starts to turn it into day, we're not going to recognize him if we're not ready for him, if we're not paying attention to him. And I've watched this kind of thing happen in the hearts and minds of so many people through the years. The mercy of God could not be more evident in what he has done in their lives, but they haven't seen it that way. 
because they are blind to the hand of God that is powerfully at work in this moment. They're attributing the goodness and the power and the mercy of God to their own accomplishments. Look what I was able to do. So instead of seeing it is the Lord, they just see themselves again. The world stays flat. It stays dark. When Christ is trying to cause the sun to rise in our situation. Friend, discernment means learning to see the hand of our Lord shaping our lives. This is one of the blessings of spending time with a saint, with someone who has developed this habit, with someone who has spent the years seeing life this way, and it just rolls out of them as easily as breathing out and breathing in. Look at what God has done. Oh, God has done this. I look in my past and I see what God has done. Look at how good God is, how he touched my life. When the sun rose this morning, they just see Christ. And these are the kinds of eyes that God is asking us to develop. It made me think of the passage of Scripture in the book of Proverbs that controls the book. It's the theme that controls the book of Proverbs. Chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Being ready to see God, the fear of the Lord, that's how wisdom begins. This is how knowledge begins. This is how we start seeing God at work. So John discerns. He nudges Peter in the, in the ribs, and he says, it's the Lord. So what does Peter do? He puts his clothes back on, and he does the kind of thing that only Peter does. He doesn't wait for the boat to get to shore. He jumps on the water and swims as fast as he can to get to Jesus. Just like Peter earlier on, it actually jumped out of the boat in the middle of a storm and walked on the water toward Christ. Just as Peter in the last chapter barreled into the tomb to see if what Mary had told him was true, he jumps out of the boat and he makes his way to Jesus as fast as he can. Peter needs to see Jesus. As far as the Gospel of John unfolds the story for us, the last time that we know that Jesus saw Peter is when Peter denied him. Gospel of Luke actually tells us they were so close that when Peter denied him the third time and the rooster crows and the sun begins to rise, Jesus looks at Peter and Peter runs away weeping in his despair and sin and failure in that moment. Peter needs to see Jesus. This is how the disciple reacts in our brokenness and in our failure and in our sin. Instead of running from Jesus, we need to do what Peter did and we need to make our way to Christ as fast as we possibly can. Peter needs something that he can only get from Jesus. He needs that sin. He needs that moment forgiven. He needs that relationship restored. He needs that time of denial reversed so that he can declare his love and faithfulness to Christ. He needs this. How much do I need to see Jesus? 
What will Christ do when I am with him? Hang on to this thought because that thought is what helps develop the rest of the passage in chapter 21 for us. But I want to make sure that we think about this for a minute or two. The disciples are failing at their fishing. They're fishing at night without Jesus and they don't catch a single thing. And they obey this one command and it changes everything inside of this story. So we see this happen in this passage of scripture. And it's something that we need to learn. Obedience is a teacher. Obedience is a teacher for us. If you want to use the word that John uses at the beginning of this passage, obedience is a revealer. It manifests, explains Christ to us in our obedience. Obedience to Jesus Christ, obedience to the word of God, teaches us about the wisdom, the power, and the goodness of God. Christ commanded They obeyed, and instead of fishing in the dark, they are now dragging their haul to shore, a haul that they cannot lift and put into the boat. When we obey Jesus Christ, we're learning about the character of God. We're learning about the goodness of God, the wisdom, the power of Jesus Christ. Let's think about it by looking at it from a different angle here for a moment or two. What can I learn about the wisdom of God if I think he is wrong about everything and I am right about everything? What can I learn about the wisdom of God if I think he's wrong at really important parts of my life? If I think his commands don't apply to me at the moment of pressure, at the moment of decision, this is a suggestion, not a commandment. I will never learn the wisdom and the power of God if that's how I treat the commands of God. If I live in disobedience, if I live in disobedience even at critical moments, I will not see the hand of God at work. I will not learn what God wants me to learn. The more I follow my own heart, the more I follow my own need for authenticity, the more I follow whatever peer pressure I feel, the less I know about the truth, the goodness, and the power of God. So friends, if God's word tells me to forgive, commands me to forgive, what will I learn about God if I forgive those who have done legitimate harm to me? What will I learn about how God has forgiven me What will I learn about how God can lift and change those burdens if I forgive just as Christ has forgiven me? Well, I'm not going to learn it if I hang on to bitterness and anger and frustration and even hate. What will I learn if I learn to do things like putting on humility instead of arrogance, instead of pride, instead of arrogance? What if I learn what humility looks like inside of my life? Friends, it is a wide open door to the character and power and goodness of God, humility is. What if I learn to put envy and anger to death? That's how the Apostle Paul speaks of it. To actually put it to death. Friends, our culture relies on envy and anger. 
What if we walk out of these walls into the rest of our lives, into our social media feeds, into our careers, into the people that we do life with, and we refuse envy and anger? What do we learn about God? What do we learn about God? He commands me to be a light to the world around me. Friends, God is right about the things that he commands us to do. And I, as a disciple, am called to obey. And when I learn to obey, I learn God was right. How many people, look at it like this, how many people who mock the knowledge of God obey him? How many people who mock the goodness of God obey him? How many people who mock the word of God obey him? The answer is none. They don't see God. They don't know God. And obedience isn't left to just the big issues. I know oftentimes when we think of obeying God, it's, it's in those moments of crisis. It's in those moments of confusion. We open up the word of God or we go back to the word of God and we haven't been there for a little while. So we're hunting and pecking for something and we're, we're looking for the hand of God. And we think, well, in the big moment, if I obey God, God's gonna come through and man, everything is gonna be great. That's often how we think of obedience. But in the simple, mundane acts of normal life, this is where obedience gains traction. This is where obedience begins to show us things about God. I love this quote from Oswald Chambers in his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. He says this about obedience. My personal life may be crowded with small, petty happenings, altogether insignificant. But if I obey Jesus Christ in the seemingly random circumstances of life, they become pinholes through which I see the face of God. Then when I stand face to face with God, I will discover that through my obedience, thousands were blessed. When God's redemption brings a human soul to the point of obedience, it always produces. If I obey Jesus Christ, the redemption of God will flow through me to the lives of others. Because behind the deed of obedience is the reality of Almighty God. Simple acts of obedience become these pinholes in my life where the light of God begins to shine through. And I may not see what all God is doing through my obedience. But he says we might actually see that in our obedience, even in what feel like the pinholes of our lives, God has caused others to see him. He's caused us to see him. He causes others to see him. And then I love the phrase that ends this quote, because behind the deed of obedience is the reality of almighty God. Friends, behind my disobedience or my apathy is just the emptiness and the vanity of my sin. That's all there is. Behind my obedience, there is the power of the almighty God. I love that. We can obey him in the simple things of life, or we can just keep on fishing at night, catching nothing. And the passage continues like this in verse 9. 
When they got out on land, <clears throat> they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they got to land with this great haul of fish, Jesus already had a fire prepared. He already had fish roasting on the fire. He already had bread ready there for the disciples. In a neat little twist in the way that John unfolds his gospel, what he says here is that it was a charcoal fire. That's the same word that's used for fire when Peter, the night that Jesus was on trial, stands by a fire to warm himself and denies Jesus three times. Jesus has built the same kind of fire and he pulls Peter and the rest of the disciples in. And they bring in this haul of fish. Jesus says, go ahead and bring him, bring him in. 153. Now we're going to do some math, and we're going to count Hebrew words, and we're going to learn the dates of the coming of Jesus Christ. No, we're not going to do that. It's just 153 fish. Why is this important? Have you ever known a fisherman to not tell you how many fish they caught? We are dealing with professional fishermen. The catch is the miracle of their obedience. It's more than they could have imagined when they set out the previous night. It's an amount that under normal circumstances probably would have torn the net to shreds. But it doesn't do that. It's the simple miracle of obedience. And then notice this as well. They bring all of this fish to shore and Jesus already has fish ready for them. He already has breakfast ready for them. I want to think about this for a minute. Obedience is for our sake. Jesus already had the fish. Strictly speaking, he didn't need the 153 that they brought. What he needed was their obedience. What he needed for them was for them to listen to him, to obey him, and to come near to him. I love how the wooing in this passage works. He's on the shore. He speaks to them. This miracle, this catch, he draws them in. They realize it's him, and he's ready there with breakfast. You see, Jesus is drawing these disciples to himself. Friends, Jesus is not powerless without our help. It's not that Jesus cannot get things done without us. On the contrary, every power and faculty that we have has already been given to us by God. And when we obey him and give him anything, we're giving back. We're using the gifts and the opportunities and the abilities that he's already given us and we're turning them around and we're giving them to him so that he can do with them the kinds of things that only he can do. 
God in his providence has chosen to use the obedience of his children to spread his kingdom. This is part of what he's teaching his disciples. Bring in this catch of fish, but I've already got breakfast ready for you guys. It reminded me of another quote. It's part of the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And he is speaking of this this action of God has given us these gifts and we turn around in obedience and we give them back to him. What is this cycle like? And C.S. Lewis says this. It's like a small child going to its father and saying, Daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course the father does and he is pleased with the child's present. It is all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. When a man has made these two discoveries... God can really get to work. It is after this that real life begins. The man is awake now. God's already given this to me. and He wants me to give it back to him. He is pleased when I give it back to him. And the text says there at the end of what we read, and they all knew it was him. All of this unfolds, and now they're around this fire having breakfast. He's given them the fish and the bread, and they all know it's him. Now they are with him. Now they have this miraculous catch with them. They have been waiting. They have been working. And now Jesus calls them to himself. Friends, Christ has arranged a revelation of himself to his disciples. They are still coming to terms with the resurrection. Some of them are still on this journey of restoration with Jesus Christ. None of them have yet, in the stories of the gospel, started to shake the world with the truth of the gospel. That's going to come later on. But Christ's work with them this morning is to restore that relationship and then to send them out as his apostles. I love this about how this passage of Scripture works. The revelation of Christ to his disciples required obedience. John discerns it, and Peter acts on it. And it all happened because of their obedience to what Jesus told them to do. He had told them to go to Galilee and to wait for them. He told them to throw the net on the other side. It all comes together, and their eyes are open, and they see Jesus. What are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Christ has commanded us. Christ has sent us. Christ has equipped us with the power of his Holy Spirit. Are we demanding that God do something else for us first before we obey? Are we demanding that God fix something for us before we decide to do what he has called us to do? What are we waiting for? For Do we sometimes demand that God do something for me first and then I'll think about doing what you've called me to do? I don't know how many of those kinds of conversations I've had through the years. Well, as soon as God shows himself to me, I'll believe or I'll do. As soon as he does what I want him to do for me, then I'll think about doing something for him as well. Who am I to tell the creator of the universe what to do first? 
What has he already done? The creator who has given me life and breath and everything. The creator who has given me his son, Jesus Christ, who has saved my soul, secured my salvation, given me abundant life now, guaranteed life with him for all of eternity. Who am I to demand that he do something for me? We obey. We listen to the voice of the Lord. We do what he has commanded. We grow in the fear and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the call this morning is about as simple as it could possibly be to you and me, Christian. Begin to obey. Begin to obey. Begin to act as if God is God. As if Jesus really was the smartest person who ever walked the face of the earth. And if that phrase strikes you as interesting, think about who you might guess is smarter than Jesus. Not a fifth grader. (laughs) Begin to act as if God deserves your obedience. We think to ourselves, well... I'll I'll wait for God to crack open the heavens and speak to me audibly, and then I'll do exactly what he tells me to do. This is the word of the Lord. This is the voice of God. This is the will of God for your life and for my life. Get to know it. Learn it. Love it. Begin to obey it. If you don't know where to go first, read the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Go to Colossians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul literally says, this is what I want you to think about. Go to Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul says, this is the sacrifice of your life, the most reasonable spiritual thing that you can do, and read through the rest of that chapter. Then begin to watch as trust in Christ grows as your knowledge of Jesus Christ grows, then begin to watch as you start to see the hand of God in the catch of fish. We begin to obey, and it reveals to us who Jesus is. And then this one is important for us this morning. Jesus Christ is drawing his people to himself. He is calling out from shore to you this morning. He has prepared a meal for you. He has prepared a relationship with you in which there is forgiveness, in which there is restoration, in which there is healing, in which he will take you and remold you and shape you in his image and send you out as his disciple, as his child. Christ is calling to us this morning. It does not matter, like the apostle Peter in his denial, and Thomas in his doubt, the rest of the disciples in their fear. Jesus does not turn his back on disciples who act like that. He calls them to himself. We have to make our way to shore, listen to his voice. We learn how to see things the way John sees things. It is the Lord. We need to learn to act the way that Peter acts. Get yourself to Jesus as quickly as you possibly can.
For there, around that fire and around that meal, that is the only place you and I are going to find healing and forgiveness and restoration. That's the only place we're going to find a life worth living is if we make our way to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your time. This is your morning. We are your people. This is your word. And Lord, I ask that you would continue to be at work. Lord, your, your manifest and palpable sense of the Spirit of God is amongst us today. And Lord, whatever the enemy wants to do, whatever the enemy wants to do to separate us from what we have read, to deafen us to the voice of our Savior, to blind us to the truth of who Jesus is, that he is calling us to himself. Lord, we pray that work would be overwhelmed and it would be done this morning in the name of Jesus and our eyes would be opened. Our ears would be opened. Father, whatever pain and difficulty sits inside of us, whatever darkness exists in our past, even our recent past. Father, do not let that become shackles or weights, but that by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, all those things would fall off of us in the presence of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. You have prepared a meal for us this morning. Have we seen it? Have we heard it? Are we partaking of it? Holy Spirit, have your way this morning.